0: When it comes to riding, understanding why we do the things we do is, is an important part of becoming a better rider. For instance, it's not uncommon uh, uncommon to see a single motorcycle crash in a corner, particularly with a maybe a decreasing radius corner. If you ever watch some of those videos of this happening, some riders will enter the corner, then they appear to stand the bike up lock up the tires, and ride right off the road. Now, very likely, the reason they did it is because they didn't fully understand counter-steering. They entered the corner, found they didn't have enough lean in it, then panicked, turned the bar into the corner, which stands the bike up, cancels the turn, then they go heading off the road, they panic, they jump on the brakes, and that just makes them go even faster right off the road into the ditch. So understanding why we do things and what we do makes the difference when you ride. Peg weighting is another one of those things. I've heard riders say that peg weighting doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which peg you put the weight on because it's all pushing down on the bike. Well, today to talk about peg weighting, we have a celebrated off-road racer and renowned rider trader, Chris Birch. We also have a physicist and rocket scientist named Mark Nesbitt, who is a former spacecraft designer for the European Space Agency. To help work through the physics of what's really happening when we're waiting a peg in a corner and i gotta tell you it's not what you think yes this is complicated maybe you're gonna have to rewind a few times maybe even listen to it a couple of times but it's really really interesting and by the end of this you're gonna know some things that few riders do i'm jim martin this is adventure rider radio stay with us we got a good one for you
1: I'm Sam Mannequin Simon Austin Vance Simon Pavey Graham Phil better,
0: Jocelyn Snell Charlie Borman
1: Simon Thomas Lisa
0: Thomas Grant Johnson
1: Jimmy Lewis Elspeth Fair.
0: Liz Jansen and you're listening to
2: Adventure Rider Radio.
0: It's wind pressure that powers the Motobreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. Motobreeze.com And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com you probably recognize the name Chris Birch. We've had Chris on our Rider Skills program here. He's well known for his racing successes and podium finishes. He's also well known as a KTM ambassador and what he can do with an adventure motorcycle is just incredible. Chris also teaches adventure motorcycle riding. He's from New Zealand. He's got a, an incredible online video series that he launched at the beginning of the pandemic. Now the other person we have on today is Mark Nesbitt. Mark has ridden motorcycles most of his adult life. He's helped prep race motorcycles for the track and off-road. He He's worked on setting up race cars um, for the track, but his mainstay has been, well, He's a rocket scientist. Mark has spent his career designing spacecraft for long flights to the outer worlds for the European Space Agency, so quite literally, a rocket scientist. Today, we're talking about riding through a corner and what is really happening when we weight the pegs. Understanding this is much like counter-steering, as I said at the start of the show. By understanding this, what's really happening, we become better riders. Now, it's a, a bit of a story, really, how a racer, a rocket scientist, and myself ended up sitting down to talk about all of this. I think I'm going to let Chris start with this since he's the one that asked me if I wanted to talk this through.
2: G'day. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, my name's uh, Mark Nesbitt. Yeah, I'm a uh, physicist by education, but uh, worked in... um, uh, spacecraft development for the last 30-odd years, and I've um, been a biker for 40-odd years.
1: And I'm, My name's Chris Birch, I'm a motorbike addict, I guess, um, yeah, motorbike racer, instructor, adventure rider, I've spent most of my life on two wheels.
0: Of course, Chris, welcome back. I mean, we've had you on before. We've talked many times. Mark, yeah, you are new to Adventure Rider Radio, and I'm, I'm curious. So you you um, you mentioned physics in there, but you also mentioned your motorcycle rider. I want to, want to sort of start with that. Um, where does riding start for you?
2: I think it, riding started for me with adrenaline addiction, basically. Um, I just uh, I started at about 15 or 16 with um, the usual kind of small Honda, and, mopeds and this kind of thing and progressed to dirt bikes very quickly and then sport bikes and then super sport bikes and then uh, some very odd machines that were kind of custom made for uh, aside, uh, one of the early experimental super motos in Europe the first super motor in the Netherlands we did as an experiment with a enduro race team here and uh, yeah, I just kept going. I mean, I was mostly a biker rather than a car driver. You know, I, I bike was my main form of transport. Um, I had a double garage and it was full of bikes.
0: (laughs) Well, that's more than transportation. That shows a little (laughs) bit of a fondness for two wheels.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. An obsession possibly.
0: Right. Right. And do do you have other obsessions? Is this just your personality trait or was it motorcycles in
2: general? No, I'm pretty much obsessive about everything. Oh, that's good. To be honest. Yeah. Um, I've been a sailing instructor and a scuba diving instructor, and if I get into something, I tend to follow it through to, to a limit and then drop it and do something else. But bikes has always been a very consistent thing through my life.
0: Now, Chris, talk a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, so my background, uh, I started off riding in trials. Um, so trials was like, a, our family activity, my mum and my dad were both riding trials and I'd, uh, I'd go along with them when I was oh, anything like, I think I went to my first trial when I was about a week old. So yeah, always grew up around motorbikes. Um, sort of gave up or well, not gave up, but moved on from riding trials when I was about 16 and got into racing enduros and race enduros domestically in New Zealand, uh, and then sort of started traveling overseas a bit more, uh, racing uh, in six days, uh, European enduro championships, uh, Australian enduro championships, that sort of stuff. And then discovered uh, extreme enduro or, or hard enduro, so events like uh, Red Bull Romaniacs. And then uh, that, that's kind of, that's where I found my, uh, I guess my calling in life would be uh, a cheesy way of saying it. But yeah, the, the, the motor type of motorbike riding that really, really appealed to me, the super technical Super difficult racing, and uh, yeah. Whilst doing that, uh, I started uh, instructing. So started working on, on on my coaching business here in New Zealand, uh, primarily as a way of um, fundraising to be able to and do all these big events overseas. And then, uh, as the racing started to slow down, the the coaching and the teaching started to ramp up, and I uh, discovered adventure bike riding, and. Now, sort of split my time pretty evenly between the enduro bike, the adventure bike, and and the teaching.
0: So, yeah. So both both of you are sort of high achievers, Chris. You know, you you've made it big in racing and really positioned yourself in the world of adventure motorcycling. Now, Mark, you with uh, with everything you tackle, but you're you're well. Would I say rocket scientist? Would that be right?
2: I used to wear a T-shirt that said that, but it was it was a little bit facetious. But yeah, but that sort of thing. So, so what did you do? <laughs> I would call myself a rocket scientist, I suppose, yeah.
0: Okay. And what did you do as a rocket scientist?
2: Well, basically, um, I started, luckily, it was just one of those freak uh, random accidents of knowing somebody who knew somebody. And somebody asked me if I would take a small contract in in the Netherlands um, back in 1990. I'd never even really heard of the European Space Agency, but they said, would you do a job for six months? So... I came over to do that six-month job and uh, kind of 30-odd years later, I'm still here. But that job turned out to be in the European Space Agency and it turned it turned out to be a job building scientific spacecraft. So,
0: so <laughs> was, somewhat uh, interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. I sort of fell into it really, not really planning it. But once, of course, you fall into it, you start – actually, I was heading for Australia – I had a job lined up in Australia and I was waiting for the visa application. And so I said, I would take the six month contract. And as soon as I got there, I thought, okay, this is a, a unique and a rather special opportunity. So, uh, that was it. I wasn't going.
0: That, that's probably one of those jobs that you don't leave one place to go work at the same job somewhere else.
2: You, it's not really. Yeah. There's nowhere else to go. Really. That's what I mean.
0: It's a, yeah. it's a pretty specialized job. Now, now, let me ask you this. Have you ever flown a spacecraft in space?
2: Not in space. I mean, we pre- actually a lot is just done in a, what would be a rather boring way, really. You tend to pre-prepare everything. Everything's a recipe. So you pre-prepare a recipe for what the spacecraft needs to do. You take you check it out on the ground when you're sure it's right you upload it to the spacecraft, and the spacecraft simply does it. Mm. So there's no real direct kind of fly-by wire or anything like that. And that, with these scientific missions, that's not even possible. I mean, the the round trip time for for the Rosetta spacecraft, for example, uh, which was heading to a comet, it would take 45 minutes for a command to get to the spacecraft, and 45 minutes for us to get an answer. To know whether it had worked or not. That's so you, you, the the, the you,
0: delay because of the speed of the radio waves getting to the, 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 speed, of exactly. right. the, the speed of light, exactly. Speed of light, which is thirty six. What is it? Thirty six thousand.
2: Uh, three times ten to the eight meters per second. I was yeah. going to say that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so the reason that
0: we're all here is is because of you guys. This is the reason we're sitting down here and, and talking right now. Chris, maybe you can tell the story of of how you found or how Mark found you. Uh, yeah, sure. So, uh, just over a
1: year ago now, we uh, we launched uh, actually right as the start of the, as the coronavirus pandemic kicked off, uh, we launched our "Say No to Slow" adventure bike coaching series, or our video coaching series, which would be hosted on Vimeo. And uh, it went really, really well. We got all this amazing feedback coming in, and uh, one of the messages or emails we got was from Mark saying how much he loved the series, how much he'd learned, but, uh, I'll try and get this right. Uh, all my physics explanations were completely wrong, <laughs> uh, which, you know, some people might think that would be offensive In reality it was like, yep, fair cop you're probably right. <laughs> oh, I
0: thought they would really have been an email in. delete, you know, right there, delete and then maybe go back. <laughs>
1: No, no, no. So, yeah, no, you're probably right. I mean, th- there's two factors here as well. Maybe we'll, we'll go into this a bit in, a, in a second. But uh, what really hooked was uh, the continuation of the email, which when Marcus said, don't worry, I'm pretty sure everybody else is wrong as well. Would you like to work together and try and figure out what's right? Yeah. And that for me, that just clicked, resonated straight away because I don't know whether it's an insecurity or just uh, or inquisitiveness. I even though I've been teaching for like 20 years now, I still don't think I'm 100% right. And I've really, what keeps me interested is that always trying to figure out the best way to teach people, the best way to get the information across and the best way to improve my writing. So when someone with Mark's resume comes along with such a, a complete different way of looking at it, it was really, really exciting.
0: Well, and to be clear here, what, what we're not saying that, and you're not saying that you're teaching the wrong way to ride. You know how to ride. You know what works. Obviously look at your, your, your track record. It's the explaining why what you're doing works the way it does.
1: Yeah. And like I've, I've got a, a video of me coaching from like 15 years ago. And every now that I watch it, and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm so far out to lunch on this, but it was the best the best understanding I had and pretty much I think the sports had at that time. So it's always, you know, like any industry or any, any passions that's a constant um, quest for improvement. <laughs> and I just saw this as a real opportunity to get, to get a huge leg up and, um, and to, to take a big step forwards with that. And the other thing that I, I'm aware of myself is uh, when I'm teaching people there's kind of what you need to tell someone to get them to where they need to be as opposed to what is actually happening. So for example, if I'm teaching like a group of 10 people and we're talking about cornering, you know, I'll tell everyone, right, do everything you can to not let your outside knee go forwards. Never let your outside knee move forwards. And we show them all the reasons why in reality, your outside knee moves forwards a little bit, but there's what you need to tell a group of 10 people to get the result you want and what actually happens. Mm. And so again, with Mark's uh, knowledge and understanding, for, well, we can really sort of, we can take this sort of thing to the absolute next level or I can tell people, you know, move your hips to the outside because it feels like this and this, but be able to say, move your hips to the outside because it creates this effect on the motorbike and, you know, this angle is going to change and blah, 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 blah. For some people, that would be a horrible way to describe it. Information overload. Yeah. But for some people, some really analytic people that we teach, that would be an absolute godsend Mm -hmm. and, you know, having many, many different ways to explain the same thing to different people and different personalities is a really, really important part of my job. So yeah. Plus the, just the absolute curiosity of it as well.
0: When you, did you not sort of look into who Mark was before you started taking what he was saying, you know, at its face value? No, not really. Um, <laughs> you just trusted them. <laughs> yeah, why not? I mean, I should say it also was the
1: coronavirus lockdown. I had nothing else to do, so. Oh, right.
0: <laughs> okay, let's take a break for just a couple of minutes. It'll give your head some time to relax. I've got a couple of things I want to mention to you, which are not only relevant, but well worth hearing. After the break, we're going to dig a little farther down into this, and we have some key takeaways that should bring it all home for you. So stay with us. I've been hearing great things about uh, Overland Expo and the events they've been running this year. Don't worry, though, you still have a chance to go because Overland Expo East is coming up October 8 to 10 in Arrington, Virginia at the Oak Ridge Estates. Now, Overland Expo is a huge event with all kinds of vendors and manufacturers there, like Harley-Davidson, by the way. They'll be there with their Pan America for you to test ride. But you can outfit your motorcycle for your next adventure. You can listen to presentations by authors, filmmakers, other travelers, mix with other travelers. Oh, and Bill Dragoo from Dart, he'll be there doing riding instruction. You know Bill from our rider skills here on adventure rider radio so much to see and do you can camp right on the site um, you, you've got to look at this so to get your tickets you need to go to the website it's overlandexpo.com there's several different passes that are available for the weekend um, don't miss out on this one overland expo october 8th to 10th in errington virginia don't forget anytime you're dealing with them throw in there that you heard them here on adventure rider radio overlandexpo.com go light go fast go far with giant loop giant loop again is one of those companies started by a rider and making gear for other riders so it's a uh, riders making products for riders and you, and you can't beat that i really think that is a, a great model the giant loop difference is they make bags for the job unnecessary weight and bulk are removed in their designs so instead they focus on lighter simpler gear that um, serves its purpose you don't have all those extra straps and buckles that are so common with all kinds of uh, packs and things and gear that you buy nowadays giant loop is well known for their loop style bags that mount on any bike no rack required they'll fit on just about anything they also have handlebar bags tank bags and some really good looking panniers as well their website is giantloopmoto.com anytime you're dealing with them throw in there that you heard them here on adventure rider radio giantloopmoto.com i don't want you to get excited about the fact that ims products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs or that they're all made with cast-certified 17-4 stainless steel, or that they've all been through a certified heat treating process, or even that they're all built in the USA. What I do want you to get excited about is what IMS Products foot pegs will do for you as a rider when you're riding. Like how the added traction and leverage of the IMS peg will increase your ability to control your motorcycle. The added leverage of the oversized peg combined with just the right amount of teeth on that peg to suit your riding style will keep you better connected to your bike, and then through the durability of the materials, their warranty, and even their looks, you've got an amazing thing on your motorcycle. IMSproducts.com is their website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So Mark when did <laughs> just back up to think about when you were watching Chris's videos what did you think
2: I loved them honestly I I, uh, I actually paid for them Chris um, I Thank think you. I think there's a small there's a, there's a small fee isn't there on the vimeo for the whole uh, set and I watched them through avidly and um, you know I think uh, that whole point's correct you know that the coaching and the methodology and the Tell your body to do this, and this will improve the result on the bike. Is all perfect, but for me, it left a little question in the back of my mind: of Why, you know, why when I do that instead of something else, is it going to work and not work? And then, of course, I watched uh, uh, maybe some of Chris's older training videos as well. I don't know, but as I heard some of the explanation, I thought, well, that's not really what's happening, and. For myself, I wanted to understand what was happening, and I can think about it in physics terms. But to have somebody with Chris's experience and, and you know, hands-on kind of self-analysis of what's happening on the bike, to, to, for us to have a dialogue over it, I thought was the best, the best thing we could do. So I just cracked an email out, and with my usual cockiness, said, uh, <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> we need to talk about this because it's not quite right." <laughs>
0: the the video series no doubt is well worth the money there's you know nothing nothing wrong with it all so let's get that clear We'll put the link in the show notes it's it's a fantastic series i've seen it as well there's there's just so much to learn and and the thing is chris like you know what works obviously you have the experience and and people can learn from that so um let's try and tackle some topics here let's dig in and chris I'm, i'm gonna ask you what do you think we should look at first
1: um i i think uh the stuff that really, really resonated for me, Mark, was uh, the slip angle and, uh-huh. and that side of things. There were several sort of light bulb moments for me uh, during our discussions, and I really... Oh, you, you'll remember the, I when mean, we go, oh, okay, that makes right, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, the, I think the slip angle thing and how that relates to how my tyres wear out, I think that, that would really work through. So I think if you could... Uh, discuss a bit of that, that would hugely help.
0: Well, let's first talk about the slip, slip angle. You're going to have to set that up, Chris, and talk about what, what you mean. When do you talk about slip angle? Where is the slip angle? What are we talking about?
1: Uh, I think, Mark, you you can probably, ex- for me, I'm, my understanding of, of motorbike riding is, sorry if I'm throwing you under the bus here, Mark, it, no. I, I talk about feeling way more because that's what I understand. So for me, it was, okay, if you do this on the bike, you're going to feel this, which is the feedback that most riders uh, are looking for is what I'm looking for anyways how does it feel mid corner if I do this if it feels better it's probably better. I'll basically th- throw it to you
2: okay um, well I, I think in summary one of my the reasons I started talking to Chris is because Chris Chris gave the feeling of what was happening and I need to have the understanding as well as the feeling so following what he said and what he felt it works but I still needed to understand it, so I had to analyze it a little bit. And one of the issues, particularly when you're in a low-grip environment, like you're riding on gravel off-road, you're not really in in a fixed situation where the bike is pinned to the tarmac and going to follow a predictable path. Everything is very dynamic. Everything is changing all the time. So you're essentially riding in a zone which is inherently unstable. And what you do as a rider, when you're riding a bike, trying to ride at the best speed you can, across through a situation which is inherently unstable, the thing you try to do is to make that range of stability as wide as possible. You try to ride in a way that the stable point you've got is as broad as it can be, so that when anything disturbs it, you've got time to correct it and your corrections don't need to be too, too dramatic to keep it under control. And that was the kind of angle, having watched Chris's videos, that was the angle that my brain went to and saying, well, wh- why is this working? Well, my first thought is it's working because he's, he's creating a zone of stability that's a bit wider than it otherwise be. It's allowing the rider to, a little bit more time to correct for anything that's happening. Would you, would you agree with that, Chris?
1: A hundred percent. And, and to bring it back to my feelings. So if I'm going through a a loose gravel corner and and I do play around with this, I I, I experiment with the wrong and the right. Uh, If I lean to the inside, if I put my head to the inside, sort of road bike style, I can feel like I, I can get away with it. It's going to be okay. I've got good tires. It'll probably be okay. But if there's any slight change, it feels like I'm on the razor's edge.
2: Hmm.
1: Whereas if I adapt the techniques that I would normally use and that we teach, you just have that huge spread of, you know, things can happen. I can hit bumps, stones, rocks, mid corner and go, whatever, who cares? My eyes are up. I'm still looking for the next corner.
2: And for me, for me as a, like a, as a, as a leisure rider, as opposed to maybe when you're, when you're kind of in the race and the hard enduro environment, you're, totally out there and, and on the edge of everything. But for me as an as a off-road leisure rider, I want to ride in a way that my stability point, if you like, is as wide as possible and I can be nice and relaxed and just keep riding through it and not have to do anything in a hurry or a panic. And if, for me, it was and, and- about it, it was about understanding that.
1: And that's exactly what I want too. I just want to be going as fast as I can whilst I'm doing it. Mm. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so just to be clear here, so what you're saying is, Mark, when you're saying everything is uh, unstable, maybe dynamic is, is a, a better explanation of it. Things exactly. are changing all the time, right? Change it, changing because of our terrain, because of the way well, the bike moves. Talk about it's that. It's
2: complex. Uh, even with a, even with like a motor GP bike with the best tires and, and fixed to really high quality tarmac, um, The dynamics of a motorcycle tire contact patch, if you like, are so bizarre. Even for a physicist, they're bizarre. You can't look at a tire contact, measure exactly what it's doing, and predict what it'll do next. It just doesn't work. You can look at what it's doing. You have to also look at the history of how it got there in order to predict what it'll do next. And that makes it a highly, what we call mathematically, a nonlinear system. It's not predictable. It can go wildly in one direction or another. And in, in, in to try to understand why it'll do that, you have to know what it's already done.
0: Okay, break that down a little more, though. So, so what do you mean when you, when you can't predict what it's going to do next?
2: Well, like um, I'll, I'll take the road example because it's simpler. Even if you just consider a road tire on tarmac, The road tire has a contact patch with the tarmac, which is not a single point. It's a a reasonably sized footprint to allow you to have the right amount of grip and generate the right cornering force. So if you imagine as each little section of rubber comes over the top of the tire and rolls underneath, each section of rubber enters the contact patch. It becomes bound to the tarmac and it has to stay on the tarmac because if it doesn't, the is going to lose grip. But because of the way the tyre's behaving, all of the little points that come over and go under and enter the contact patch can't follow the same path because the contact patch is too big. They have to take a different route through. And that generates twisting force within the contact patch of the tyre itself, which we see eventually as heat in the tyre, but all of the little bits of contact between tyre and tarmac, are fighting each other.
0: And now you're talking about because the tyre actually flattens out, because the tyre shape changes as it becomes a contact the, patch?
2: Yeah, because the contact patch is more than just an infinitesimal point. It's actually a few square inches or whatever.
0: Right, and it's and it's sort of mushing the whole time
2: as it goes around. Yeah, and each piece can't go exactly on the same line as the other, but equally they can't follow their own line as they wish, because otherwise the tyre would just shred. So they have to develop tension and and stress and torque forces between each individual part of the tire as it goes through the contact patch.
0: So this is just because the tire is, is sort of uh, deforming as it comes around, as it rolls yeah. around and becomes the contact yeah. patch, each part of it is deforming. Um, each
2: little bit is fighting.
0: Right. So it's, so we're, we're talking about going in a straight line here on asphalt that is, let's say theoretically the same asphalt along, If you'd find yeah. it a racetrack oh, probably is the best consistency.
2: We're, we're kind of in. in a curve actually at this point. Oh, to you're talking fighting, about a curve. Okay. Generally you're in the curve already. Yeah. We're okay. talking about cornering here, I think. Most of the time.
0: Okay, so so this is okay. So we're all we're talking about cornering. So this is where the slip angle thing comes in. So exactly, can you talk about the slip angle?
1: Yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I'll just interject for a second. So, uh, just as a as a total layman here, what what will probably help people get on board? My aha moment as we started talking about this was, oh, this is why my my knobbly tire wears out in a really weird way when I do a whole bunch of road riding on it. It's why those second knobs and wear off at a really weird backwards angle and look like they've been yeah that it's why that's doing that
0: yeah when you told me that chris that, that sort of really took me because I, i've always wondered i ask everybody when we talk about this nobody seems to know everyone has theories but it's like why is this thing cupping why do they always cup on the front and, and this yeah. is where it comes from
1: yeah so i think for your, for the listeners that'll help get us on the, on the page here yeah good point
2: yeah very good yeah so each individual, and in the case of an off-road tire, of course you've got nice knobbly chunks you can measure each one. In the case of a road tire, you just have to take some imaginary little pieces, divide it up into an imaginary grid of little bits of rubber. Um, but where the slip angle comes in is then the tire, the wheel itself, the contact patch is traveling in one direction. Yeah. So the wheel is the wheel is pointing in one direction. But because of all these little tensions between the pieces of rubber in the tyre on the contact patch, the contact patch itself is moving across the tarmac in a different direction. So wherever the front wheel is pointing, the contact patch is not following exactly the same line. And the difference between those is the slip angle. And what that means is that the bigger the slip angle, the more tension there is, the more conflict there is between the way the tire is trying to go and the way the contact patch is actually going.
0: Okay, why is there a slip angle?
2: Why is that happening? Um, simply because if, if they theoretically, to be a physicist, we always reduce everything to a single point, you know, uh, you, you reduce everything to a single point uh, in infinite free space and then everything's simple. And the real world isn't like that. So the contact patch of the tire isn't just one point. As the tire cambers over, the rubber deforms, there's a flexibility in the rubber, and we need that broad area to give us enough grip on the tarmac so we can generate cornering forces and stopping forces. Um, So although ideally we would like the contact patch to behave as a single point, which just track the same line as the tire was as the wheel was pointing the real world doesn't let that happen we have a bigger area that's touching the ground and so there are conflicts between the perfect point in the middle and the areas around that such that the average part of the contact patch moves in one direction and the wheel is pointing in another and the two are fighting each other and and we're losing cornering force by doing that
0: If the wheel was steel and the surface was steel, I know the traction would be an issue here, no doubt. But if they were, we wouldn't have this issue then.
2: Effectively, no, because what you would do with a non-deformable material, it's a very good question. Yeah, The non-deformable material, which is what you're assuming the steel would be, Mm -hmm. is going to create a point contact. And so there's just really one point of contact, which is going to follow a perfect ideal kind of route. There'll be no slip. But of course you get no grip either. So. Right.
0: So it's kind of like, it, I just had this image pop in my head. It's like, it's like if you had a rope, you had a slope, a muddy slope and a whole line of, of people holding onto a rope and working their way across that muddy slope and each one is sliding a little bit. Each person that comes behind is going a little bit further down that slope as the whole thing slips. That would be the slip angle.
2: It's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So collectively, collectively they, they have to work as a team so they can't quite follow the direction they would be able to follow if they were just one person.
0: Right. So what they actually have to do is they have to sort of aim uphill even farther to try and counteract this slide down the hill.
1: Yeah. So when you're, when you're on the road and you have a really low-pressured front tyre because you just came off the off-road and you couldn't be bothered to pump it back up again, and your mm-hmm. steering feels really, really dead and weird and slow to respond. Yeah. You're, you're feeling an increase of those effects, aren't
2: you? Yeah, exactly. And of course your tyre will overheat as yep. a result because there's too many lumps of rubber trying to fight each other.
0: So why would we need to understand that when it comes to riding a corner?
2: Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the key point. Um, and this is where I don't want to go into... Yeah, we'll all go into the whole story, but just sticking with the principle of the slip angle, if you imagine that the front wheel has a slip angle. So we imagine that we have to do some work as a rider to manage the difference between the the direction the wheel's pointing and the direction the contact patch is traveling. The same thing applies to the rear wheel. That is doing the same thing as well. It's less significant on the direction of the bike, but the same thing's happening. So in, in effect, we have two slip angles. We have a slip angle of the front tire. And we have a slip angle of the rear tire. And in addition to that, we have some kind of, because we're cornering and we're following a curve with two different profile tires, front and rear, they're following slightly different radius curves. So the slip angle of the front wheel and the slip angle of the rear wheel are not the same angle and they're not pointing in the same direction. So not only is each tire fighting itself about where it wants to go, both tires are fighting each other.
0: Well, this doesn't work at all. I mean, geez, motorcycles well, are not, not designed correctly, are they? <laughs> You'd
2: think not. You'd think not. And of course, on tarmac, uh, with a race, imagine as you said, the race bike on perfect tarmac, a lot of that is taken into account by the clever compound in the tire, the geometry of the bike, profile of the wheels, et cetera. And it's almost transparent to the rider. So those, that, that technology does a great deal of the work for you in that situation. But as soon as you go off-road, where well, you've got a very dynamic situation between contact patch and ground, and different uh, steering geometries are livelier, if you like, um, suspension characteristics, then the rider has to do some work to kind of help those two slip angles to work together, as opposed to fighting each other.
0: Okay, Does that so make sense? so yeah, and, and and what Chris was saying was, you know, he can take a corner um, off road. He can do the corner well, sort of wrong in, in the dirt by by leaning inward and putting his head inward. In other words, to the inside of the corner, and the bike will slip more. We'll have a, a, a great. He'll have a greater slip angle, and mm-hmm. so what we're talking about here is changing that riding position so that you have less slip angle. So you're always trying to, I mean, you're never going to eliminate it, but you can mitigate that slip angle.
2: Not almost, but not quite Jim, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, and this for me, when Chris and I first talked, I think this was the great step forward. And I'm not hundred percent sure whether this theory is perfect or not. Um, but, you know, I came, we, we talked about it from the, the physics side. Chris tried it out riding And I think between us, we've come to the conclusion that at least if this theory is not perfect, it's certainly pointing in the right direction. And the idea is not just, it's not really about trying to reduce the individual slip angle of each wheel. But where each wheel, there's another angle. So I don't want to get too complicated. But if you consider whatever reference point for the slip angle is, say the the direction of the wheel is pointing, the rear wheel and the front wheel have two different angles. That's the steering angle. So there's a steering angle and associated with the steering angle, there are two slip angles, one for the front, one for the rear. So that
0: would be the the and actual, the, the arc that the tire should theoretically go in as opposed to the actual path that it's taking because it's slipping slightly.
2: And, and the difference between the front and rear. So when you right. lean a bike into a curve, uh, because of the trail, on the, on, the, on the front fork, the, the bike will naturally turn the front wheel in a little to, re, to lower the, the frame to the lowest energy point that it can. So the, the, as you lean a bike, the, the front wheel will turn in. That's d- really due to the trail or rake. I don't know what you call it in the States, rake or trail. Um, so the, the two wheels, as you go around a corner, the, the rear wheel will be pointing wrong one way. The front wheel will be pointing slightly into the corner, And each wheel has its own slip angle relative to the way it's pointing and the way it's sliding or the way the contact patch is moving. Now, the great thing for me, when I looked at Chris's video, and this is, you know, if you want to highlight with your, with your highlighter in audio, any point of this whole discussion, the idea of weighting the outside peg, once you set up in the corner, effectively for me aligns the steering angle more brings the two slip angles closer to each other and into a similar direction so that we create this stability point which is wider than it otherwise would have been giving the rider more time to react to anything that disturbs the corner.
0: Okay, so you're talking about the difference between weighting the outside peg as opposed to weighting the inside peg, and these are the changes that it makes. Now, I know many people would argue that, well, what's the difference where the weight is applied if it's if it's still pushing in the same direction on the motorcycle?
2: That's that's also yes, good point. The you have to look at the the point. Well, you have to look at physics. We would call it the 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 um the vector in which the center of gravity acts so so gravity's pulling the bike down the cornering forces are trying to move the center of gravity of the bike outwards from the corner the lean is the thing that balances that and makes sure that the outward force due to cornering balances the yeah exactly balances the falling over force due to gravity and those two are balanced but that, And that sets a particular steering angle up for a normal turn. However, the wheel, as we all know, the front wheel is subject to quite some gyroscopic forces. We all know the idea of countersteering. So, for example, if you wanted to turn left, you would pull back. You would, you would apply a backward torque on the, on the right handlebar, and the bike will lean over to the left. It's the old countersteering principle. Sure. Now, we're all familiar with that, but actually the peg weighting has equally a gyroscopic effect. When you weight a peg, for example, the outside peg in a curve, relative to the center of mass of rider and bike, you're also applying a turning torque to the front wheel, which will also result in a corresponding gyroscopic torque. And that torque, when you weight the outside peg in the turn, will cause the front wheel to point slightly out of the turn, to slightly oversteer. And that aligns the two slip angles of the two wheels, and it gives you this broader stability band.
0: It's pretty tricky, isn't it? <laughs> it is I'm going to I'm going to just throw in my thought on this, okay? Mm-hmm. Is, is is what I what I see is I see two things happening. One thing in in my mind what's happening is one that Chris already mentioned was that you're you're telling you yourself to do something your body's sort of doing more than that. And, and that's making up for part for, or that's making the difference. So here, here's the example. So you weight the inside peg, physically, your body is shifted more to the left, more to the inside. You weight the outside peg, physically, your body is, le- is weighted more to the outside of the motorcycle. That gives the obvious advantage when you're cornering, um, you're, you're, um, putting that weight on the outside. Now, the other thing that I see that we haven't talked about here is leverage your foot peg is outside of the pivot point if there were one down the middle of the motorcycle. Exactly. So when you step on it, that leverage is actually levering the tire down into the dirt whereas if you step on the other peg, the other peg, same weight, but you're actually levering the the contact patch away in other words destabilizing the bike.
2: And there you go, Jim, uh, no disrespect, but you've hit exactly this thing between intuition and physics. And your intuition there is perfect, and of course that's exactly how it works. But what's really happening is not the same. Uh, so if I if I if I wind back the so the idea of applying weight to either side of the bike to the pegs, you were talking about leverage that you're kind of applying leverage there. But from a physics point of view, we'd actually talk about torque. What you're doing is applying a rotational force. To the centre of mass, not an actual leverage. And what that means is with both wheels spinning, when you apply torque in one direction, the wheels are going to um, experience a gyroscopic effect, which will cause them to turn in another direction, which is essentially 90 degrees to that. So as you weight the outside peg, you're applying a rotational torque to the centre of mass of the rider and bike, and that will cause the front wheel to actually turn and and kind of oversteer. It will cause it to turn out of the curve a little. And the effect you get there is that you are aligning the two slip angles, the front and the rear wheel, and actually narrowing them a little. So what you're doing is you're broadening that band of stability that we need as a rider, to give us time to react to any perturbation that happens as we're riding.
0: Okay, so so uh, torque and leverage. I mean, I understand that's that's what I was picturing exactly was the twisting action yeah. of it. But what I didn't get was that you're saying that it's not so much that it's pushing down at the contact patch. You, you're trying to tell me that it's this, it's the the change in the gyroscopic effect of the wheels that, that I'm yeah. affecting by standing on the outside peg, or that Chris exactly.
2: Is- you, you can't change as a rider, as a, as a dynamic rider, one mass on top of a motorcycle, another mass. You can't change the fact that you've only got two contact patches. You cannot deliver the force to the ground in any other way. You can move forwards and backwards, which, I mean, Chris covers beautifully in his his videos as well, and that's one of his key issues that maybe is another podcast, but moving the weight forwards and backwards is very important. But in terms of cornering and in terms of achieving a cornering force, that you sacrifice a little bit of that cornering force in order to buy yourself An increased range of stability, then by weighting one peg preferentially to the other, you're putting a torque on the bike, which allows the front wheel to maintain the same lean angle, but but turn out of the curve a little, align the two slip angles of the front and rear wheel, and meaning that anything that happens to disturb the motion, you've got time to correct, and Smaller corrections are needed because if you do a correction that changes the front wheel, it's not going to disturb the back and vice versa because the two are quite aligned. So whichever manoeuvre you take to try to keep things stable is going to work much more effectively because it's going to work equally on both wheels, and you've got more time to kind of experience the result of the effect and make sure you're doing the right thing. Instability is all about having to react too quickly with too fast a result, it basically flips you off.
0: So you're saying it's more aligning the slip angles to the front and the rear wheel than it yeah. is changing the weight on the contact patch?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Interesting. You Chris. can do nothing. The, Chris, we're, w- what does this do
1: for us, though, in understanding it? Well, to be the, the guy that just comes on and talks about feelings, um, <laughs> when it can bring it back to a, like a, a loose, horrible gravel corner, Mm-hmm. And you guys listening will, I'm sure, be able to relate to this. As you're tipping the bike into the turn, as you're entering the turn, you don't have a lot of weight to the outside in that moment compared to what you do on the outside uh, on the exit of the, t- of the turn. Exactly, and that's and it, the bike feels really fidgety and awkward. You kind of feel like you're maybe on a bit of a razor's edge there. And then you get the kind of the to the apex of the corner. You got your weight to the outside, and you crack on the gas. And as soon as you start to wind that power on. It's like, oh, this feels so much better. Mm-hmm. As you're coming in, your slip angles aren't lined up on the way out. You've got all that weight to the outside and the bike. It feels like you can do anything. It feels yeah. like the cup, the corner's done by that point, even though there's still a lot of cornering effect going on. And that's, yeah, to, to bring, for me, that, that that's the feeling that Mark's trying to describe and the, the, the science
2: behind. Exactly. And actually what you've done is, You've not given yourself any greater control over the bike. What you've done is widen this area of stability that the bike has so you have much more time within that to react and measure what's happened and moderate it and keep it going smoothly around the corner. So you broaden that region of stability that you have during the apex of the corner.
0: Interesting. That feels good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it all comes down to, doesn't it? So, uh, yeah. do do we need to understand that to get the corner right? It's no, a good but it's point. Really interesting,
2: Chris. Chris. Chris is the best one to answer that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, the honest
1: answer is absolutely is absolutely not. But it's really interesting. <laughs> so, I I would say I after after the work we done with Mark, I would say I sixty percent understand it. But for the rest of my writing career, I had absolutely no understanding whatsoever, hence
2: why Mark called me out. Um, It's just really interesting. Yeah, well, I think also there's another aspect to it because at the moment, Chris and I, we've explored it to where Chris teaches now. Maybe with that understanding, we can go a little further and maybe we find some improvement or refinement from that as well. By understanding what's happening in the first Mm. few teaching steps you can maybe find a path towards adding a couple of tweaky steps on there that maybe he doesn't want to give away because they're the ones he uses during hard endurance or whatever. <laughs> the, key, the
0: keys that put him at the top of the podium, right? <laughs> I so, don't have
2: that many tricks left. I'm not giving them away.
0: So what What are we getting rid of here? What What does this do for us? What does this allow us? What, what myth does this dispel for us?
2: Do you want me to pick that up? Yeah. Well, Please. I... I yeah, I'm not sure about myth, but I would say for me as a rider, and because because I watched Chris's videos, because we had those conversations, I mean, Chris went out, he kept those ideas in his head while he was riding. And then we talked again. He said, Oh yeah, okay, I see what you mean now. I, I can kind of feel that happening and you know, my what you said kind of fits with what I'm feeling. For me as a rider, then with that feedback, I went out and did the same thing and said, Okay, my my theories are kind of maybe working here you know um and my key takeaway to be quite honest because i'm not you know particularly with adventure riding i'm nowhere near um even competent i would say i'm just getting into it really Um, but what it's done for me that understanding has given me the confidence to know that by following chris's method i'm widening that area of stability and, I, and therefore, I don't have to think that I'm on a razor's edge at that point. That because I understand, for me personally, how it's working, and I know it's broadened the stability band, I don't have to think that every little movement's going to make a difference. And if I don't get it perfect, I'm going to fall off this time. And oh, I've got a little bit more time. I know I can spend a little bit more time in the curve, playing with it, and learn quicker.
0: So it's a concept thing, you know, you know, to understand what you said at the start was zone of stability. And I like that, that, that term or that, yeah. uh, that little statement there. And, and so by understanding that what you're actually doing is creating a, a wider zone of stability that um, makes you feel better. Basically, it gives yeah, you a different concept. Want,
2: well, it gives me more confidence.
0: Sure. And, and, and definitely makes you understand what's happening if, if you're correct. Yeah. I'm not saying yeah. you're not.
1: And who doesn't, as an adventure writer, who doesn't want to be more relaxed?
2: exactly yeah, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. yeah um and you feel that you you know that's what you were talking about when you when you come out of the corner you accelerate and they they even align more um, you feel that stability you feel the difference I mean I mean let's face it anybody can watch your videos Chris they can go out and do what you've taught and compare it to what they were doing before and if they weren't doing the same thing and feel the difference I mean there's there's no mistake in your mind you know that this works
1: hmm. Yeah, and to be honest, no disrespect, Mark, I think the feeling is more important.
2: Absolutely, um, yeah.
1: If, yeah. It, if it feels good, it probably is. Um,
2: but, but I'll just but, say, and equally, Chris, no disrespect, but and, and you could see me as one of your kind of uh, pupils with high feedback, you
1: know.
0: Um, absolutely.
2: Nightmare, the, the- nightmare pupil. <laughs> no,
0: not
1: at all. The, the worst one is a blank canvas, like, oh, yeah. Oh, that No, that's true. Oh, no, but
0: no, Mark will I'm... keep you there for hours, probably asking yeah, you over yeah, question after yeah. question after question. Yeah, but I'm
2: kind of into this, so it's, that's okay. <laughs> but, but but for me, when you te- when you say, "Oh, do this and it'll be better," I can do it, and it feels better. What I need to know for me personally is I need to know that that isn't a knife edge either. That isn't something mm-hmm. I have to perfectly match with what you've taught me. Mm-hmm. I can understand that the principle you're teaching is giving me a broad range of stability that I can actually work with, and that's more important than just knowing that you're doing the right thing. It's more important to know that while you're doing the right thing, you have some freedom within that to play with it for yourself,
1: mm-hmm. which is so important for for adventure riding, right? Like we have such changing conditions, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so like you said, so many millions of variables. That uh, we need to have that range that we can operate in. And that needs to be as as wide as possible.
2: Uh, And if you feel comfortable with it, you feel comfortable with kind of stretching the envelope a little bit. You don't feel, I've got to do exactly this, otherwise I'll fall off. Yeah. Oh, no, no.
0: And so is this where we go with everything that we're talking about when it comes to really looking at the physics behind what we do when we ride or what Chris does when he rides to to get ultimate performance? Are we talking always about widening the zone of stability?
2: I think for me, and this is a subjective view, as a kind of casual adventure rider, that's what I want. I want to feel that the skills I've got give me enough flexibility within any situation that I can just ride through it and be relaxed. Mm. I really like that. I mean, one yeah.
1: thing we always say at the start of the schools, you know, I'll say to the guys, I'm not going to try and teach you how to ride your bike faster today. Mm. Uh, I'm going to try and teach you how to have more control. And you can okay. turn that into going faster, riding nastier terrain, going further, whatever it is that's re- or just not crashing, which is whatever is relevant to that student they can exploit that control in any way that they want and just sort of sitting here listening to mark like that's exactly you know what we're trying to create in this cornering is that that greater range greater range of control in the in the scenario that we've explored the physics behind
0: chris what does this change for you understanding this now that you, even though you said it's 60% that you understand at this point um, it's it, whatever understanding you have of it now what does it change for you as a rider
1: it's given me a, a greater confidence in, in what I'm teaching. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm not the world's most confident person. which um, I think in some ways has kind of helped me be better at my job because I'm, I am constantly second guessing myself. I am looking to see what other people are up to and what's working, what's not. So it's given me uh, another, a deeper level understanding of the technique um, and that it does work and it is the right way to do it. Uh a layer above just feeling. Um, And also when we get the, uh, obviously no one as knowledgeable as Mark, but when we have that more sort of analytical customer that, that why what's actually happening here, I probably botch it a fair bit, but I can give another way to explain uh, the technique and another way to get the the information across Mm -hmm. and, and, that's really, really important. You know, everyone learns differently. Some people, you can tell them, tell them, tell them, and it won't make any sense until you jump on the bike and show them. Some people are going to respond really well to the, the more scientific, this is what's happening to your tyres, slip angle explanation that the marks help to provide. So it's just another and, another way of attacking the problem.
2: And the, the other thing, if you don't, don't mind me saying, Chris, is the, I mean, the, the kind of theories that we've come up with and we've explored together – they're quite new, really. I mean, okay. even even the exploration of the cornering of a, of, a, of a normal road bike on tarmac is very, very difficult because of this non-linearity of the problem. To try to analyze that off-road is something that people really haven't done, as far as I'm aware. I've, I've looked at some research from universities in different parts of the world, but on tarmac, it's already difficult. Off-road, it's very difficult you.
0: So, so hang on a second. You know, as I sat down to do this edit for this interview, I got to this point and I'm thinking, it didn't quite do it. This, this didn't nail it down for me. So I called Mark Mack and wanted to get the final word from him. Okay. So Mark... I was doing the edit for this episode and and I felt like I needed a bit of clarification. So thanks very much. Mm And I wanted to to run this by you. Okay. So
2: it's not an easy topic, so I'm happy to try and clarify it some more.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not. what we're talking about here and really what I'm getting this down to is that we're talking about um, traction in the corner and why peg weighting actually does matter. Not to mention that, that most riders that listening to this would probably, if any, would ever imagine that, that if I'm correct here, that it has more to do with oversteering and understeering than it does to do with contact patch. Mm-hmm. So to, to sort of distill this concept down to its essence, weighting the outside peg in the corner, we're, we're on the, we're in the dirt. We're making a left-hand corner. Um, weighting the outside peg, which would be the right peg in this case, is not about how it pushes down on the contact patch, which I think is what we've always had in our mind here, yeah. is, is that you've changed the, the area, they've changed the contact patch maybe more to the side of the tire. You're, you're directing forces straight down. But it's, it's not about that. It's essentially, it's how it aligns the front and rear wheel slip angle thereby creating a wider zone of stability. And that's a term that's, that, that you sort of said at the start, I'm sticking with, zone of stability yeah. by reducing oversteer. So so by doing so, it gives the rider more room for error, which is assembly, essentially more time for corrections Hence mm-hmm. the, the feeling of more control. So in fact, you do have more control because you have a wider zone of stability, which gives you that time to react to things. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about reducing oversteer and gaining control of our bike through that rather than anything to do with really with the contact patch we probably haven't even changed much with.
2: I, I think you're almost there, Jim. Uh, and that's, that's really cool because it's not an easy thing to get your head around. But I think it's a little bit more subtle than just the oversteer issue Um, there, there are many elements that will cause you instability particularly on loose surfaces and this particular concept of weighting the outside peg is more about how it changes the alignment of the front wheel in relationship to the way that the bike is generally tracking around the corner And as you said, it brings those two slip angles of rear and front wheel into much more of alignment, so they're not conflicting with each other. Often even, I mean, in any corner, even on tarmac, you could end up in situations where the two slip angles are what we might call positive, that they're both bending into the curve. Uh, Or one could be positive and one could be negative, and that may not be the front one or the rear one. They're quite dynamic. So... The less aligned the two slip angles are, the more each tyre has to fight against the other tyre. And so when the rider's trying to give inputs, there's less chance that when the rider gives an input to try to correct what he feels is a, is a problem in the front or a problem in the rear, that it will actually work beneficially on both tyres, both front and rear. So if, if you feel, as a rider, you feel like, OK, I might be losing some kind of traction on the front... And you put a correction to that it may help the front but of course it could make the rear situation worse so by putting the bike into a situation where the way the two tyres the front and rear are fighting each other is more aligned the chances are that when you give an input it's going to be beneficial for stability and traction for both wheels and that's the key.
0: So by, by weighting that outside peg, what we're doing is, yes, we're reducing our oversteer, but we're more aligning the, the front and the rear slip angles. Mm-hmm. So a exactly. single input will correct both tires or at least change both tires.
2: Yeah. And the result of that is what you said earlier, that once, you're in a, once you set the bike up into a situation where one input is going to be more consistent on both front and rear, You're effectively creating a zone of stability where things that go wrong for the bike, like you hit a little rock or something, will have a slower impact on the stability of the bike. And you as a rider will have more time and can put more subtle inputs back into the bike to keep it on a good track. And that's what you're buying. You're buying that as I called it before, that breadth of the zone of stability, you're, you're widening in it, making your job as a rider and your challenges as a rider much simpler.
0: One of the examples you, you gave when we were talking about this was the pencil, and you were saying about if you hold the pencil on the end of your finger and balance it on the tip of the pencil, it would be very unstable, whereas if you lay the pencil across your finger, it becomes more stable. Those two comparisons, or that comparison between those two um, physical uh, images, uh, or mental images rather, of the, of the pencil... That's the difference between what we're talking about, isn't it? Because if if the slip angles are not aligned, you're more like the pencil is vertical. If the slip angles are aligned, it's more like the pencil is sideways. You have exactly. a little yeah. bit more stability or zone of stability.
2: Of course, with the pencil analogy, there's two things going on. One, you've reduced, you've lowered the center of gravity of the pencil, which of course helps a lot. But more importantly, you've increased the roll inertia of the pencil it takes to disturb the pencil and make it wobble takes a much bigger input because it's mass it's it's its ability to become unstable and wobble is is spread over a much wider area above its contact patch which is on your finger
0: why do the front and rear tires fight each other if they're not on the same
2: slip angle well so on on a um, On a road bike on tarmac, a lot of this conflict is taken up in the dynamics of the rubber. So the tyres are designed to cope with the torsions, stresses within this conflict between direction of motion and the direction of travel. uh, The direction the wheel is pointing and the direction of travel of the contact patch. When you're on a loose surface, the tyre hasn't got the ability to do that for you. So little bits of the tyre are flicking stones one way and flicking stones the other, and on average they're trying to keep going in the same direction. But, of course, the more bits of gravel they're flicking one way or another means there's less stuff that you're actually riding over and and, and stably riding over. You're moving away the surface that you're trying to ride on because of these torsions, these twisting effects within the tyre. and of course, each tire the wider that angle gets between the way the tyre's pointing and the way the contact patch is trying to move, the more your tire's going to start pushing the loose stuff underneath it around. And it's going to be basically rolling on a on a surface of moving gravel. And each the front and rear will then be doing that where they're moving the gravel in different directions. So to regain control of that situation if something goes wrong as a rider, it's much better for you if you have a wide range of stability, gives you time to correct for what's going wrong possibly there, and that your inputs you give have a much more subtle effect on the balance of the bike. If you put an input in and the bike reacts very quickly, You haven't got time to work out what went wrong and maintain the balance. So what you need is to be able to put subtle inputs in and have time to realize what's happening and time to correct those inputs. And by making both wheels behave the same way on the loose surface, you're buying that mental time for yourself and basically having a much more relaxed ride than you otherwise would be.
0: So, so what I was saying about um, about oversteer, then, mm-hmm. it does have to do with that because by the, just by nature of reducing a slip angle, you reduce the amount of oversteer. And and here's a and here's a point where I think a, a lot of people will will be surprised, or some people may be surprised, is uh, we we talk about countersteering. You mentioned that before as well. Countersteering, yep. you know, so if we're, if we're going to to turn left, we can push on the left bar, and the bike will lean over to the left-hand side and allow us to to enter our turn. But after we enter that turn, we are Mm -hmm. actually, subconsciously, another one of these things that you do automatically without understanding it, we actually are steering into that corner. And and this is where the oversteer comes in. Is that correct?
2: It it is, but there's actually, it's a complicated thing. There's two things happening there, which is really interesting. The the geometry of the bike, particularly, I don't know what you call it uh, necessarily in your part of the world, whether you call it rake or trail or but basically the difference between where the steering angle goes and where the contact patch is on the ground creates this kind of caster angle.
0: Mm -hmm. That would be trail because rake is the angle of the steering head.
2: Exactly. You can measure it either way, either as the physical trail or the angle. So the trail um, is a natural part of a two-wheel vehicle geometry. Without the trail, it doesn't really go around corners. What the trail does is when you lean the bike to one side, the front wheel will also turn that way to compensate for the way the trail has changed once the bike starts to lean. So when you counter-steer, if you push the left bar forward by gyroscopic force, the bike will lean to the left and you would think that the wheel would turn to the right, but it doesn't. The wheel also turns to the left, even though you're pushing forward on that bar because the torque causes the bike to lean and the geometry of the bike causes the wheel to turn in.
0: Oh, I see, because your contact patch has, has moved forward.
2: Yeah, and that's very counterintuitive, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've all, I mean, the last 30, 40 years, I mean, I remember when I started biking, like countersteering was thought to be some kind of magical myth. You know, it's, it's not really a concept from certainly my history of biking that's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. People were hard, you know, it took time people for people to accept the idea of a counter steer. But even then, when you counter steer, it's bizarre because you think counter steering is turning the opposite way to the lean, which of course it is, but the, the, the front wheel still goes in that direction because the geometry of the bike has changed.
0: Mm-hmm. So, for a split, and
2: that's what pushes you around the corner.
0: Right. And for a fraction of a second, particularly at slower speeds, it's going to turn slightly to the right and then veer to the left.
2: And then the bike will roll in exactly, yeah, yeah. and actually that turn doesn't really happen because the the when you when you push on the bar it doesn't move.
0: Oh, you're saying you, there, there's no, but but even at slow speeds because at slower speeds I thought it would become uh, more pronounced.
2: At very slow speeds, but then you're into a different. Uh, I'm
0: not talking below counter counter steering speed, which is like you know I don't know twenty kilometers an hour or something like that. I'm not talking below that exactly. speed. But I'm saying at at lower speeds. You're saying it does not cross that center line to the right whatsoever.
2: No. Wow. because the what you apply is a torque by we're all familiar with the torque wrench and mm-hmm. you know the idea of applying a torque what you apply with the counter steer is a torque to the front wheel in one direction which the gyroscopic properties of the wheel will do by will respond to by creating a torque in an axis that's 90 degrees to that so the bike will start to lean instead right and when it leans it actually does turn bizarrely against the way you're pushing it. That bar is coming, even though you're pushing that bar, that left bar forward to enter a left-hand turn, even though you're pushing it, that bar is moving towards you. How's that for counterintuitive?
0: Yeah, that really is. And that's what I was talking <laughs> about, is because when you're, in the, when you're in the corner, you are slightly turned into the corner as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the way the geometry of the bike works with the gyroscopic forces on the wheel it's all very counterintuitive and very subtle. Uh, but we all know it. it's so easy. We just get on and we just do it and it works. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know what the physics forces are behind that. And, of course, with Chris's idea of, of outside weighting the peg, if you can imagine that the counter-steer that we just talked about, that pushing that left bar forward to enter a left turn, is creating a, a perpendicular, and you know, a, a a torque in an opposite axis which is basically making the whole bike lean over to that direction to the left mm-hmm. when you weight the outside peg you're adding another torque to the front wheel which is a torque essentially that is opposite to that lean you've just induced okay you with me yeah But the effect of that is, of course, it has to work in a direction that's 90 degrees to it. So the the handlebar push caused the wheel to lean over instead of turning. The weighting of the outside peg you think would cause it to stand up again, but it doesn't. It causes the front wheel to actually turn to the right. It causes it to turn in an axis that's 90 degrees to the one you applied the torque to.
0: Right, so, so once you, you set the- up the corner with, you, with your lean, then you're sort of opposing it to straighten up that wheel and, and reduce your slip yep. angle.
2: Exactly. So you put the lean in with the countersteer because the bike needs to lean to turn, otherwise you've got no, you don't generate any cornering force. But all that cornering force causes slip angle conflicts between the two wheels. But you can actually correct that by the outside peg weighting which causes another gyroscopic force to turn the front wheel out of the corner a little bit. Mm-hmm. And you align the slip angles, but you've still got the lean. So still, you, you lose a little cornering force by doing it, but you lose much less cornering force. It's not a symmetrical, it's not a zero-sum uh, kind of solution.
0: This is so complicated that I'm not sure I can ever enter a corner and
2: complete it ever again. Of course you can, because you can do it intuitively. <laughs> that's the whole, that's well, the as, beauty of it. As, as long as your I don't think it, it through. <laughs> it, yeah, your brain does it. But it's nice to understand it, because if you want to refine that, and you want to, you know, you have a bit of a spill and you don't know why. Um, for me, anyway, it's useful for me to understand this count I, I don't have to fully understand the counterintuitiveness, but it's good to know it's there. So that when I start doing these odd inputs and I wait the outside peg and I think, oh, well, yeah, that works. Why does it work? Why did it work today? Will it still work tomorrow? Mm -hmm. And of course, if I understand why, I know it'll still work tomorrow because I know the reason why it's working it's just not that intuitive and it's not that easy to get your head around.
0: No, I agree. And and that's the same as countersteering. In my thought process, that's why you need to understand countersteering because Mm -hmm. when you get into a situation going into a corner and you see it a lot, single motorcycles sliding off the road on a tight corner, they find a decreasing radius or something changes in the corner and they panic or they don't know how to countersteer. So they don't even understand how they got there. So they can't increase it.
2: And if you overthink it, if your intuition fails you, and you overthink it, you, you you end up binning it. Yeah, you, you steer.
0: That's what you do. Yeah. You steer yeah. and then the bike yeah. stands yeah. up and then it goes right off yeah. the road. And that's what they do. You yeah. can see it. If you slow down videos, you, you see it all the time. But Mark, the other thing that I think is really important with this, the thing that, that I really get excited about, is the mm. idea that weighting the outside peg does make a difference. Because there are, there are some riders out there who say, well, if you look at it you know, from a physics point of view, you're just putting weight down on the contact patch. So if you're on the inside peg or the outside no. peg, it doesn't matter, but it
2: does. And, and that's the point they're missing, I, I, all respect to them because it's not intuitive. The point, and I agree with them entirely from a, from a, a, a if a bike wasn't moving, it makes no difference where you put the weight. Mm-hmm. It's exactly that. It doesn't, you can't change the fact that the weight is still going to go through the two contact patches of the two wheels.
0: Right. So, so at low speed stuff, like if you were, if you, you know, a couple of kilometers now, you're, you're barely creeping yeah. along lower, slower yeah. than you would go in first gear. Then yeah, that's the case. Yeah
2: then weight shifting side to side is the thing that makes all the difference. But as soon as you get to 20 kilometers an hour and above, the torque, the gyroscopic torque forces in the wheels become as significant as, say, 20 25% of your body weight right. relative to the mass of the bike. So it really starts to be, even at that speed, although it's not massively significant like it would be on a, on a race bike, on tarmac, even at that speed it's nearly as significant as the kind of weight you're going to put in by moving your body around so you have to take them into account and they become i think by the time you get to 30 40 kilometers an hour they become the dominant forces
0: that's great mark thank you very much i'll I'll let you go back to your spacecraft and thanks thanks for stopping to talk
2: it's an absolute pleasure jim loved it
0: Well, I've been speaking with Chris Birch from his home in New Zealand. You can find out more about Chris at his website, chrisbirch.co.nz. Also, his video uh, series for training adventure riders on Vimeo at vimeo.com forward slash say no to slow. Uh, we'll have those links in the show notes, as always, on our website, adventureriderradio.com. The other person was Mark Nesbitt, and he was at his home in the Netherlands. You can find out more about Mark probably by getting a telescope and looking up. That well, about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And we sure hope you enjoyed this as much as we did making it because it was a lot of fun, a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun to uh, to put this together and, and so many things that are brand new to learn with this. It was really good. So anyway, special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. And of course, to you, the listener, thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, if you're not supporting Adventure Rider Radio already, we need your support. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. There's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but really, we would love to see you get on our, our Patreon. Or our monthly patron support so we can count on you each month. Um, but uh, there's a bunch of different ways. Anyway, drop by and have a look. Anyway, um, the other thing we'd love is if you could go give us a five-star review on iTunes. Um, it helps other people find the show and th- that would be great. So if, if you got the time, um, definitely, I, I would very much appreciate that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week.
2: Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.